Right. Uh, can we remain seated? <clears throat> I'd like to introduce you to our next two presenters who will be presenting evidence and research on the funding needs of typical South Africans. We are a very diverse heterogeneic society with very different needs and circumstances. Megan and Michael will be asking some important questions like should it only be about retirement? They, they will offer a program which seeks to serve the broader needs of of most South Africans. By way of introduction, Megan Butler is a senior actuary at Alexander Forbes Financial Services, where she works as both a consultant as well as evaluator. She also works at WITS as a senior lecturer, where she teaches the postgraduate pensions course. She is the current chair of the Actuarial Society's Damages and Compensations Committee, and is also involved with ASSA's F104 course. I, of course, don't know what that course is. <laughs> Michael, Michael Prinsloo, uh, who you've heard present before, is Head of Institutional Research and Product Development at Alexander Forbes Financial Services, and in this role is responsible for thought leadership, the setting of best practice, and product development in the long-term savings arena. Michael is a certified financial planner. Over to you guys. Thank you, Costa. I feel like a little bit of a heretic standing in front of a Retirement Matters conference and asking the question if retirement savings should be what it's all about. After all, it's what we do, and we all know that saving for retirement is something that's very important, both at a macro and household level. However, the facts speak for themselves. We know that if given a choice, members are going to maximize take-home pay. They're going to minimize their pensionable pay. They're going to minimize their contribution rates towards formal retirement savings. We know that when changing jobs, fewer than 10% of members preserve, which means that 90% of their savings are lost to the system repeatedly over their working lifetimes. And we know that fewer than 5% of our members reach the hallowed goal of 75% replacement ratios. In fact, 30% of retirement fund members don't expect to see retirement age at all. They don't expect to see the age of 60. These stats aren't encouraging. It doesn't show us that we're getting any closer to getting people to a dignified retirement. And in case there was any doubt, or if you had any doubt in our statistics, we only need to look back as far as February, and at which time there was so much resistance to compulsory preservation at retirement that the retirement reform process halted yet again. That wasn't for the first time. In fact, the conversation about compulsory preservation is one that we've been having on and off for 30 to 40 years. So how did we land up in this position? Part of the problem is the incredible fragmentation that we have in the delivery of financial services. So if we think about individuals, Individuals have a very complicated life. They have very complex financial needs. They're not sitting behind, the, behind their desk or at their place of work pondering how they're going to get to a very comfortable retirement in 40 years' time. They're trying to figure out how to balance all their financial needs, including putting a roof over their heads, funding for an emergency, trying to help out a family member in need, or trying to educate their kids. There are a huge number of ways that they can do this. However, what you've got on the screen is a rather busy diagram showing you how they could do it. There's a lot of things going, up, going on up there. And there are a lot of different role players and a lot of different people offering benefits, some of which talk to each other, but a lot of which don't. The industry that we work in focuses right there, just on retirement savings. To a certain degree, Yes, we do consider other auxiliary benefits such as death and disability benefits. However, retirement savings alone is just a very small part of what is required in order to meet people's financial needs. It led us to ask, is it us or is it them? When we interviewed members, over 80% indicated that long-term savings were very important to them. It's not that people don't want to save. When we asked them what they wanted to save for, the primary reason for savings was in order to fund for a funeral, followed by providing a lump sum at retirement, housing, and education. 
saving for a rainy day also featured strongly. We know that retirement savings aren't people's first choice of retirement funding of long-term savings vehicles, and there are a few reasons for this. One is the fundamental lack of trust, but a second is the lack of flexibility. When we asked members what would encourage them to save more, after all, they recognized it was important to them, they told us it was flexibility. Members weren't interested in getting greater incentives in order to get them to save more. What they wanted was control over their money. And what they didn't want was their money to be taken away from them, kept away for them, from them, and then given back to them in dribbles and increments when, when or if they eventually got to retirement age. So now we're sitting with a problem. South Africa is the most indebted country in the world. 86% of South Africans are in debt, and the average South African spends 49% of their after-retirement income, sorry, after-tax income trying to service or repay that debt. At the same time, we have one of the highest long pension savings to GDP ratios in the world. So we have a crazy system where we have people who are deeply in debt, but who also have long-term savings available to them, which they simply cannot access. Which led us to ask the question, how can we leverage retirement savings better? How can we use the existing structures that we have offering employee benefits and workplaces in order to be able to better meet the needs of members? So, how do we go about meeting more of these needs? Well, let's start off by looking at what people want and what people need. We looked at six priorities, emergency savings, education, housing, health, and by that we particularly mean healthcare after retirement, retirement funding, and risk benefits. We don't take full credit for coming up with this list. These are the savings priorities that are also featured in the Singapore Central Provident Fund, which the professor mentioned earlier. And this has been something that Singapore has been focused on since 1965 when they introduced this fund. And it was, at that stage, it was primarily there to encourage housing development in Singapore. Let's take a look at it in the South African context. And we're going to start off looking at housing. It goes without saying that housing is very important. We're all going to go back somewhere tonight and have a roof over our heads. And it is a top savings priority for most South Africans. It's also the biggest default savings intervention, a substantial retirement asset, reducing what people need in order to be able to retire comfortably, and contributes to overall financial wellness. So how can retirement funds be better leveraged? If we look at how employees earning 7,000 to 25,000 rand per month live, we see that 46% of them own formal housing. The vast majority of these are, for, are fully paid off. There is no mortgage left outstanding on these houses. 38% rent formal accommodation. However, the remainder have, have shacks and informal settlements, live in back, structures in backyards, or have traditional dwellings on tribal lands. Even for people in formal housing, there's often severe overcrowding. So simply having a home doesn't mean that it's actually adequate for meeting people's needs. And there's often huge pressure for people to expand their homes and expand their footprints. Housing, in order to understand how we can deliver housing better, it's important to understand that South Africa actually has four different housing markets. The market that most of us will be familiar with is the normal market. It's available to people earning 17,500 rand a month or more and it applies mainly to dwellings worth more than 500,000 rand. It, there is well-developed advertising and marketing. You have competent estate agents, competent conveyances, title deeds change hands as they're meant to. Below that, you've got the affordable market, which works in a, a fairly similar way. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the subsidy market, and that's available to people earning less than 3,500 rand per month. These houses are typically coming at about 180,000 rand, and the people in this sector tend to receive um, government RDP houses, which is typically a 40 square meter um, building with a subsidy, packages of, a subsidy package of services that comes with it. 
In between, you've got the gap market, and this is really where the need is. And this, this serves people earning between three and a half and twelve, twelve and a half thousand rand per month. This is the group that's too wealthy to qualify for free government housing, but cannot access services around housing that people in the affordable and normal market can access. As a result, their housing acquisition is usually incremental. And by that, we mean people gain access to an RDP house or to another small dwelling and then add onto it over an extended period of time on a room by room basis when it's affordable. The subsidy housing market, as we've said before, tends to work in a giveaway environment. However, people make up any shortfall um, through personal savings, so that's where some of those personal savings are going, or through unsecured microloans. In the incremental housing delivery, there have been a huge number of houses delivered in this segment, and almost all of those are without any intervention or help through and are financed through personal savings, unsecured loans, and pension-backed loans. Whereas the formal housing delivery, there are some subsidies available um, to people earning up to incomes of 15,000 Rand per month. However, at this level of the market, mortgage-backed loans are available and people tend to access housing through this um, financing mechanism. So that's housing. There's a dire need and people have limited ways of financing um, their housing requirements. We now turn our attention to emergency savings, and this is one of, the one of the big reasons why a lot of South Africans find themselves in debt. And when we asked people questions about how they could cope with unforeseen expenditure, the results were somewhat surprising. For households with incomes of, tw of 20 to 40,000 Rand per month, when we asked them how many of them could withstand unforeseen expenditure of just 1,000 Rand, 18% said that they would have to borrow. Only half of those households said they had enough savings to just cope with a shock of a thousand rand. That doesn't even cover you for one burst tire. The, as the amounts got bigger, the number of people who were able to finance those expenditures through savings shrunk dramatically, and by the time we got to an unforeseen expenditure of 10,000 rand, which one could easily see in the case of a medical emergency, 48% of those households would have to borrow. What is telling is the number of households who would be able to borrow from a stockfall in this situation. Our research showed us that a number of households are accessing both formal and informal savings mechanisms. And in fact, about half the households um, in the middle income group were using both informal and formal mechanisms for saving. If we looked at a slightly lower income group, we saw that the propensity to borrow was even higher. And in fact, 42% of lower-income households couldn't even cope with the 1,000 rand of, un of unanticipated expenditure. What was frightening for us was how little difference there was between middle and upper-income um, households and the lower-income households. These financial shocks put households under severe strain. They encourage um, the use of micro-lenders, unsecured finance, and can result in debt spirals that are almost impossible to get out of. Education is also a key concern. As, as Costa mentioned, I work in education, and this was a graph that in one sense didn't surprise me, but in another sense terrified me. And it's a little bit busy, but I want you to focus for the moment on the, on the bars. Don't focus on the lines for the moment. And what that graph shows you is the percentiles of government schools um, by grade and by mathematical comprehension. And the upshot is only the, the top 20% of government schools are teaching maths at the appropriate grade level, which means for 80% of schools, learners are testing consistently and considerably below the levels that they should be testing. It's little wonder then that we have a problem in terms of youth unemployment and in terms of the quality of our matric education. Even by grade three, only the top 20% of schools are actually teaching um, even at kindergarten level. By the time you get to grade nine, only the top 20% of schools are even teaching at high school level. What the lines represent is how that translates into earnings. And what one can see is that children who go to the top 20% of schools have a considerable earnings advantage relative to their peers going to the other schools. The problem with education is that 
at most you have a six-year lead time, really, in terms of how, in terms of your saving for your child's education. And it, what's telling about this graph is that investing in the early years of education is probably going to give the biggest reward in terms of income later in life, as well as foundation um, for education in high school. So this means that families who are going to prioritize education need to do it early in their child's career, and it needs to be a consistent investment. A further consideration is two-thirds of children who leave school cite lack of funds as a major reason for doing so, and this severely impacts their, learning, their earning potential later in life. This has much larger social ramifications, given that so many South Africans are reliant on their children for retirement funding, and so many families rely on one or two um, people in the family getting good jobs in order to support the extended family. How much does education cost? Well, it depends both on what school you want to send your child to and their phase. However, even a, a government primary or high school can cost up to, can cost 29,000 rand per annum. Private school schooling gets a bit more expensive. Private high schooling is very expensive and universities will cost about 50,000 rand a year. Education inflation has outstripped regular inflation by a considerable margin over the last couple of years, and we expect that to continue well into the future. This makes saving for, a t saving for education a major priority for a lot of families, particularly for families with more than one child. I'm now going to hand over to Michael. He's going to explain how we can put this all together in a vehicle that allows people to meet some of those objectives. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I don't know about you, but I found the fact that one in five people who earn between 20K and 40K a month can't afford a thousand rand is relatively shocking. And I think this is where we start stopping to ask ourselves a, a couple of questions. Um, so what we looked at was, again, the same priorities that Megan's been talking about. And, and effectively, what we've tried to do is say, what, is it, what does it take to actually fund all of these priorities? Um, and what I'm going to present is, is really, and I will say it at the outset because there's a room of actuaries here as opposed to anybody else, so before you uh, attack me around uh, the quality of the modeling or the fact that it's a really simplified model, let me just put it out there. It is a very simplified model, and it's very naive. Okay. Um, but what we were trying to test was, is this even possible? Is there, is there a scenario where we could do something more and, and also, what I'd like to say at the outset is, we are not standing here saying that retirement is no longer important, or retirement is not what we're trying to achieve. I think uh, the professor the other day said it um, really nicely, or Dr. David Knox, rather, for those of you who attended, he said that the goal was a dignified retirement, and I think that's exactly what we're talking about, is a dignified retirement. So how can we actually get um, more of our members to actually a, a place where they're having a dignified retirement? At, at the moment, a few members are, those who do the right things all the way through, but the reality is that on the ground, we know that people are not doing the right thing all the way through. It, it doesn't matter whose surveys or whose numbers you actually look at. I think if, if we look at the outcomes from the retirement system for individuals, I don't think we are achieving what it is that we set out to do. And really, that was what started us asking some of these questions. So very simply, let's have a look at the, the retirement funding. This is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This should be all of your bread and butter. Um, but effectively, a 12.5% contribution rate, given a set of assumptions, gets you to a 50% replacement ratio. For a guy at 23, uh, contributing all the way to age 63. And we can debate the assumptions you know, backwards and forwards, but I think that that's pretty much in the realm of, of reasonability. Um, if we look at emergency savings, this one's a lot harder, and it's kind of like the education problem that Megan was talking about. Uh, you don't have 40 years to save up for the emergency. There's no guarantee that the emergency is going to happen in 30 or 40 years. The point of an emergency savings fund is to have it available as quickly as possible. Therein lies the problem. In order to get that savings, you need to put quite a high percentage of your salary away to actually achieve a meaningful um, savings amount within a relatively short space of time. And so you know, what we've got along the top is the target number of, of salaries, and I don't know if you can see in the little circles, but effectively it starts at kind of uh, half a month and goes all the way across to kind of five months 
um, salary after five years contributing 10% of your salary every month. Okay, so that's kind of how it works. If you wanted to get to three months salary as an emergency savings pot, you're sort of looking at a 10% contribution rate for around three years, just under three years. So, so that's the number that I've put in here, and if you follow the table at the bottom, effectively what I'm doing is just adding up what this poor individual is going to be spending on a monthly basis. If we look at housing and the housing problem that, that Megan was talking about, um, there's a number of different ways to fund housing, effectively uh, through debt only. So one of the lines is debt only. One of the lines, the orange line, is savings only. So effectively, I save up money and I buy my starter house. And all of this, I should say, was done for somebody earning starting at 23, earning 72,000 rand per annum. So 6,000 rand a month, and then increasing over time um, with real increases. So with our standard Alexander Forbes uh, salary scale. And effectively, that person at the age of um, 30, in their late 30s, would be able to pay off their starter home, a 250,000 rand house. Now remember, Megan showed you the housing chart earlier. That's very much in the gap, the, the, the missing middle, if you like, of, of what we're talking about um, in terms of the cost of the houses. And so obviously people who are earning significantly more, um, and the sort of theory here is that those who are earning in the top 1% or 2% or 3%, whatever the number is, will effectively be able to look after themselves for a lot of these priorities. That's not really what we're trying to, to solve here. And then the, the sort of turquoise line, and I hope it's turquoise on the screen, is effectively a combination of savings and debt. Now the number starts at around 45%, and that's not because the, the mortgage is 45%. The mortgage is about 15% of the guy's um, salary on a monthly basis. But the problem is that you actually need to live somewhere and renting a place at the same time as paying the mortgage um, is what pushes that up. And it starts off at about 45% and drops down over time. Long term, it averages out at around 15. But to start with, the 23-year-old has to put anywhere from, if he's got to live with his parents, for example, 15%. If he's got to make do on his own, kind of up to 40, 45%. I've chosen the number that looks the highest because it makes the charts look the scariest. Um, and, and so there's no science behind that, but effectively it illustrates what the problem is starting to, to become. In terms of the education, um, Megan put out the costs of, of education. Clearly education is a largely fixed cost, and so as your salary increases, it becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the salary. But if for a one child, to, to educate one child, and this is government school, this is not private school education, clearly somebody earning 72,000 rand a year is not sending their children to private school. Certainly not the private schools my children are at. Um, and the 20% would be the, the, the contribution percentage that would be required to educate uh, that one child. So that's on the education side. In terms of medical, during retirement, so we're talking post-retirement medical um, only here, and effectively the contribution rate re required to sort of meet a middle-of-the-road medical plan would be about 3%. So the number bounces around depending on what kind of plans you're looking at. Um, this is not full comprehensive, that would be about 5%. But effectively, a 3% contribution rate over a 40-year term gets you to a sort of capital position where you're able to afford the, the medical premiums in, in retirement. Okay, so I'm moving perhaps too swiftly along here. Maybe I should slow down. So please chart if I need to slow down. So the risk benefits, we've just assumed here a 3% allocation to risk benefits. Again, that could be 4 or 5% in some of the funds that you consult to. It could be less. It could be paid by other people. But we've just assumed a, a 3% uh, sort of contribution towards risk benefits, which would cover basic death and disability benefits um, in most instances. But you can see what the problem is. Um, those of you who are smarter at maths, and I assume that that's probably the bulk of the people in the audience today, um, would be able to work out that that adds up to over 80% of that person's pay. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no ways I could contribute 86% of my earnings to those priorities. Um, there would be nothing left to live on. Where would your food and, uh, um, food and healthcare cost? This is not pre-retirement healthcare that we haven't even factored in yet. So effectively, the total picture is actually one that is not necessarily feasible. And yet, this is exactly what we're actually asking individuals to do. Every single one of you in the room are doing this in one way or another, in your personal capacities. Every single one of the members and the funds that you consult to or that you advise 
are faced with this exact same problem. This is a financial planning problem that every individual out there faces. These are the priorities, and we can argue and with debates as to whether these are the, the biggest priorities. There may be other priorities that um, certain individuals would throw into the mix, but it doesn't matter what those priorities are. The point is funding all of these priorities at one time is extremely tricky unless you're amongst the highest earners um, in the land. And so, you know, we have to look at what offers us a, a ray of hope in terms of trying to deal with some of these issues. Um, Megan mentioned the Singapore Central Provident Fund, and that's some of the thinking that's, that we've been looking at is to how can you actually manage this cost? Um, Singapore is not the only country that does that. Uh, Malaysia, for example, have a very similar system where effectively there are various buckets allocated to, to different um, to different priorities, and those things can change over time. And so life cycle theory, which I think maybe five or six or seven years ago, uh, Professor Anthony Asher probably presented to a very similar forum to this and suggested that you could start saving for retirement at the age of 50 by putting away 50% of your salary every month. And I suppose the numbers work out. Uh, the, the challenge is actually getting people to do that and to commit to that um, up front. But effectively, this, the concept of the life cycle theory does provide us some hope. Sequencing these priorities actually does reduce the overall cost over time or at least bring it down to something that's manageable. There's no magic wand here. It doesn't miraculously make each of the objectives cheaper, but it does certainly allow individuals to achieve these objectives in a kind of focused way. The flip side is if we ask the individuals to meet all of these objectives on day one, which is largely what we're doing, you know, we have people saying, save for retirement, put in more additional voluntary contracts, you must save, save, save. We have other people saying, you've got to make sure you're, you're underfunded for risk benefits. Um, you know, there's aspirational needs around um, housing. Education, as Megan illustrated, uh, the chart on education is extremely powerful. I mean, what that suggests is that for an individual, investing in their children's future, getting them to the best schools, has a very real payoff. That's what, that, that's what those dotted lines showed. That's absolutely a legitimate and realistic investment strategy um, for those individuals, assuming that their children will then have the earnings capacity to actually, to actually look after them. And it may not always work out like that, but there's nothing wrong with people thinking like that. And so we think that this provides us an element or an interesting element of something to think about in terms of how you can manage the cost. But it does require people to stay involved, and this is where the second concept around the Central Provident Fund and other things that we've been looking at actually come into being. One of the challenges Megan put up earlier was the low preservation rates. And we've been talking about that for a very, 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 very long time. Quite frankly, without very much difference. Um, I don't know if you've seen a massive improvement in the funds that you consult to in terms of the leakage out of those funds, but I suspect on average that the leakage, the situation hasn't improved dramatically over the years, certainly not to the levels where you'd like it to, to get to. And the issue, the question of is it them or us, was really around it makes it so difficult for individuals to actually meet their immediate needs that they're actually incentivized to cash out for these other priorities that quite realistically are higher up on their agenda. You know, retirement is this thing that's really far into the future and it's very hard for people to actualize what that actually translates into. And so if the system doesn't meet immediate needs, and this is part of the, the hypothesis here, if the system doesn't meet the immediate needs, people are then incentivized to effectively find ways to cash out. Or at least they'll think, they won't think twice before cashing out, not realizing the damage that they're actually doing. So the question is, who will help the individual stay on track? Who will help them stay within the system long enough to actually benefit? And so what we looked at was, can we construct a situation where we actually meet a range of these priorities? And this is where the sort of simplified, naive model comes into it. But effectively what we've said is, let's take a guy who starts at age 23 and retires at 63, um, and the salary increase I've spoken about, so there are real salary increases, earning a salary of 72,000 rand a year at the start, um, and he starts the savings program on day one, and he continues all the way through to retirement. And we know that that in itself is a problematic um, assumption at times. And here are the objectives that the individual has set himself or herself. Get to at least a 50% replacement ratio on retirement, and I'll come back to that number um, a little bit later. Build and maintain an emergency savings fund of three months salary, provide full education, from age six to tertiary for two children. So we saw that the costs of one child were a little bit earlier. And fund and pay off 
a starter house of 250,000 rand using the debt and savings model. So the combination of debt and savings, which I think is um, probably a better model than the savings only. A real return of 4% on the long-term investments, a post-retirement rate of 3.25%, and the emergency fund is topped up every five years. Uh, it's, no good, it's no good to just build a three-month emergency fund and assume it never gets utilized. Life happens. And so we assume that every five years, there's a 50% drawdown on the emergency fund. Maybe that's too aggressive. Maybe it's not aggressive enough. But that's the assumption that's been made. Um, the real value of the house is 250,000 in 20 years' time. But I mean, it's 250,000 rand in today's money. We haven't looked at tax effects. Obviously, somebody earning this level of salary, tax is a very limited consideration at this point. It becomes more important later on. Um, and we've assumed we've ignored risk benefits for the purposes of this particular particular model. And so what we were trying to find is, if I wanted to meet all of those objectives in item five, how much do I need to put aside every month in order to actually achieve that? And this is effectively what we found out. Um, using the model that we built, the contribution rate is approximately 46.2% on a monthly basis, or, or, and, and staying the same, obviously growing with, um, growing with salary, salary growth. And the gray bars at the bottom are the sort of liability drawdowns, the payments of the house, the emergency savings, the, the education costs that get paid over a period of time. And you can see that there's quite a lot of them in the early years. Really, that's the savings, that's the emergencies, that's the education, um, and then you know, a few of them later on. And the orange line, which you may or may not, may not be able to see kind of in the middle there, is the replacement ratio that climbs up to 50, 51%. And so we get to a 51% replacement ratio We've paid off the house, we've educated our two children, we've had our emergency savings, which has meant that we've actually got some money to tap into in the event that something happens. Remember that thousand rand example that, that Megan utilized earlier? Um, and we haven't had to necessarily cash out our retirement fund every time something's actually taken place in our lives. The theory being we've actually enabled somebody to remain preserved or remain paid up. Whether they will or won't is then up to us, but at least they haven't had to cash in for those specific events. But obviously, 46% is a relatively high number still. Um, it's not as high as you might think. So if you added up what you spent on a monthly basis for all of those things, if you, if you added up your children's education, um, your housing costs, your retirement savings, your discretionary savings, and you added all those together, you're probably somewhere north of 30%, I'm guessing. So, you know, 46%, but it is a relatively high portion of salary, specifically for somebody earning 70,000 or 100,000 rand a year. And so we can look at levers to reduce the overall contribution rate. Two levers, clearly the power of time, compounding. Now, the challenge you've got there, and Megan did mention it, is you've got very limited time for compound interest to play a role in terms of funding your children's education. You kind of only have a five or six year heads up, unless you're going to start really young and just hope that you find somebody to get married to and actually have children. Um, so you don't really have a lot, a lot of lead time. And also for your emergency savings, you don't have a lot of lead time to build that up. And so that's why the contribution rates for those things are relatively high. There's also subsidization. And I'll show you what the effect of, of those actually are in a second. If we started two years earlier and retired two years later, I'm sure you're all aware of the impact of retiring a little bit later, but effectively the 46% reduces to 36%. It has a major, major impact on the affordability of achieving all of those goals. And the same goals are actually met. So what we were solving for was the, the actual contribution rate. The goals, are, the goals are set. And then in terms of subsidization, if we removed education, and at the lower levels, education is fully subsidized, or at least largely subsidized. Um, the required contribution rate drops to 20%. Education is a major, major part of the equation. Now, 20% is not an unrealistic uh, contribution percentage. This just sets out some of the subsidization issues. Um, and effectively, what this does is said, if we want to, to have a 30% contribution, if we assume a 30% lifetime contribution, is actually a reasonable number. And that's just the assumption. If you assume 30 is a reasonable number, what portion of the education cost, and we've chosen education, you could have arguably chosen anything else. Education was easy because already a lot of subsidies exist for education. Um, what portion of subsidy is required on the education costs in order to actually meet the 30%, in order to have the 30% be a realistic number? And 
at 72,000 Rand salary, it's 60% of the education cost that needs to be covered. Clearly, as the salary rises to 144,000 on the right-hand side, education cost, you need 9% of the education cost to be subsidized in order to make a 30% um, lifetime contribution achievable or at least um, meaningful. So that just gives you a sense of the power of some of the subsidies that are out there. And that's also something that I think we sometimes overlook as to what subsidies actually exist already in the systems when we factor into what it is that we're actually asking people to do. Um, what, what it is we're asking people to contribute. Do we actually take cognizance of some of the, the other things that are out there? Um, just a word about the modeling. I've already said some of this, but clearly it has a very, very big impact. And so, you know, a very small change in the salary scale has a big impact on the outcome. But I just want to go back to, if I can go back, yeah, should be able to. I just want to go back to, to, to this chart. The, the hypothesis effectively is that we're not winning in terms of the preservation argument, and we're not winning because we haven't won the hearts and minds of the individuals that we're actually looking after, the funds that we're looking after they don't necessarily see the value in the retirement fund system. We know that it's there, we, we know that it's important, and they will know that it's important at some point in the future, but they don't know that right now. So how do we speak to some more immediate needs without throwing away um, the, the retirement fund system? The second point is you know, we are getting 5% of individuals, in terms of the numbers Megan showed earlier, to a 75% replacement ratio. We can debate whether 75 is the right number, is it 90, is it 100, is it 60, it doesn't really matter. The point is a very small proportion of members are achieving what would be considered a reasonable replacement ratio. And the question we ask ourselves is, would it not be better if the system got 50% of people, and it's a made-up number, to 50% replacement ratio? But philosophically, that's the question. You know, are we getting people, we're getting a few people to the right outcome because they happen to do the right things, tick the right boxes, or because they happen to be extremely lucky. They haven't had the bad stuff happen to them. But we're not building the system to cater for what life and the stuff that happens to, to everyday members. And so really that's, that's the focus area. That's what we've been trying to, um, trying to look at. Uh, let's just see what else was there. I don't think that was kind of the last slide. Um, so, so effectively that's, that was the hypothesis. We've looked around the world. Are there models like that that exist? And we've mentioned a few of them. There are others. I'm not suggesting for a second that the modeling that's been put up here is um, the holy grail, and certainly I'm sure it can be improved dramatically. But this was really a philosophical debate and, and a philosophical concept. And I think we'll close off with that, and we'll invite, I think there's some time for some questions. Chris. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Megan. Right. <laughs> questions on the floor? Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for the for the presentation. Um, it's I'm really glad you've done the numbers, and I don't care how simple the model is. I think doing that, those numbers and seeing the realities of it is is really important. Um, and yeah, so a couple of comments. Um, one uh, one is that a 50 percent. If you're working on a 50 percent replacement ratio in your model. Um, and you're not taking into account the fact that people are contributing 30% of their, of their income throughout their life, you're actually working on a much better replacement ratio because what you're getting is a 50% of 70% as a final replacement ratio. So, so just, just having that savings in there and calculating a replacement ratio after savings makes a huge difference and it actually becomes a more attainable um, target. Um, and then the other one, which is my personal sort of uh, hobby horse, is that... Um, the more this, this kind of model can adapt to, to actual expenditures, so as soon as you expend it, so, so increasing the rate um, of savings later in life, while it's not the, the end all and be all, reduces, again, reduces that uh, net, net replacement ratio requirements. So all of these things, I think, can be done, done too smooth. The key thing here is how do we make, and, and this is a legislative uh, challenge, how do we make savings vehicles that really allow the money to flow between all of these savings um, platforms and allow us, you know, allow money from retirement funds to provide for, for things and to back certain things. And that designing something so simple within the legislative systems that's not not really um, designed for it is a huge challenge. You know, on the outside, this thing should look very simple, but inside, the workings of it will be very complicated just to allow for the flow of money. But I think that's the way forward. And I'd love to see those calculations done for for higher income brackets as well, just so that we can see what those numbers are. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
Um, yeah, so just, just a comment on the, on the vehicles. Um, we, have, we have had, uh, we've been presenting this over the last couple of weeks just at some of our client seminars, and there certainly is, there appears to be some, some interest in this, but also from the regulators or the legislators who are actually attending. So National Treasury attended one of the sessions, and, and certainly they're actually faced with this problem at the moment. The impasse we got to on T-Day around preservation and uh, we can say it in the room, we can implement something called default preservation and I suspect we're going to go down a largely similar route to what we experienced on, on T-Day. Um, they, they don't necessarily know at this stage how to actually deal with that impasse and, and things like this may provide them some avenue and so they, I think they're going to have to start thinking a little bit wider than, than a narrow focus and, and they're certainly interested in at least talking about it. So you know, does it doesn't mean it'll change in the short term? Probably not, but uh, I think there is some interest in it. So thank you for your comment. And just, sorry, just the final comment, just the possibility to reduce your risk benefits towards the end of life as well. Yeah. I mean, actually, this is, this, this is sort of an extension of um, what already exists in terms of auto-escalation of contributions, life cycle risk benefit structures, um, you know, even age-banded contribution rate structures. These are, those are all bits and pieces of actually a very similar puzzle. Just a comment from my side on vehicles. There are a few ways of doing this in a very sophisticated manner. So, for example, the CPF flips your emergency savings into your retirement savings immediately before retirement. Um, so it enables you to access it within the, within the retirement funding framework. If you were to do it here, there are ways and means of doing it here, even without substantial reform or waiting on substantial reforms from the government. We have a number of, of vehicles that can be used for a variety of different purposes. For example, unit trusts, tax-free savings accounts. You can use those vehicles to fund for pretty much anything because um, they're not really earmarked for specific purposes. So judicial use of that type of vehicle could help us achieve a, a degree of flexibility. And I don't think we need to get too hung up about having everything inside the legal vehicle called the retirement fund. We've had unapproved risk benefits existing, coexisting peacefully with retirement fund savings for some time. We, we understand them, we're able to cope with them. This is simply saying, well, can't we have some other things apart from unapproved risk benefits attached to the retirement funds to try and meet even more needs. Thank you, Megan. Any more questions? That's, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it is. <laughs> oh, maybe it is, maybe it is. I mean, we, we also recognize that there are some issues with, with some of the assumptions in, yeah, in, in the sense that it requires people to stay the course. Um, and you know, when, when individuals are changing jobs, for example, will you be able to actually keep some of this with you, keep it going for it to be meaningful across your lifetime? And so those sorts of issues, portability, for example, is an issue. We recognize that. And we don't think it's necessarily one that can't be solved, but it's not necessarily easy. I think the other advantage of this sort of model is that it, it allows for interfamily and intrafamily transfers of income more readily. Um, it, it can be set up so that you can use some of your funding in order to fund for other people's needs. Um, in fact, we keep on going back to Singapore, but it, it really is just such an interesting model. In Singapore, if your parents need financial support in their retirement and you don't support them, you can be fined. So their model is, is well set up to cope with the sort of um, World Bank Pillar 4 transfers that we see all the time in the South African context, which currently our models don't really help with. One part of the research that we did, which we didn't show you today, was about youth savings and black tax and how young South Africans are coping with the fact that a lot of their um, early earnings are going to their extended families except we expect them to be putting about 86% of their earnings to these other things that we've, we've told them are important to them. Um, at last year's, uh, or it might have been the year before, um, you spoke about uh, investing in DC funds with an explicit income goal in mind. Um, how would this sort of framework um, cater for that sort of approach? Uh, do you see that there is a continued alignment to that sort of approach in terms of investing um, uh, for these various 
for these various explicit needs. As yeah, absolutely, Costa. So we've actually, um, although we haven't got into the details here, we, we see this dovetailing very nicely with a kind of goals-based investment framework, effectively funding these priorities at different times and, and investing in line or, or to target those specific priorities. Right. And so we see, we don't see, although we've in the simplified model, we've, it's very simplified, yeah. we have in the benefits barometer book where a lot of this is actually captured, um, we have actually set out what we think the, the benefit of a goals-based approach would actually be, and, right. and that's exactly what would be advocated. Okay. So we're not departing from, from that discussion at all. Yeah. Great. Any more questions? There's a question in the middle here. Hi, I, th I, think, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the industry is the charges or fees. Now, with this uh, model, did you look at the potential, because you are moving from around 12.5% to 40-something percent, so you'll be harnessing lots of assets. Did you model, because for me I see a real possibility for overall reduction in the unit fees that you charge, either in administration and investments, did you look at that? We haven't explicitly looked at that in the model. We used um, a, a return after fees. Obviously, the lower the fees, the easier that return is to, to actually get. But I think you're 100% right in the sense that the, the greater the asset pool overall. And, and remember, a lot of these assets actually already exist. I mean, as I said, people are already solving this problem. They're just doing it themselves. Because the people already live somewhere, they send their children to school mostly. People are dealing with this issue. What we're trying to do is find a, a way to help, help them deal with it better. They're dealing with it currently largely in the retail space, largely um, on their own, and sometimes informally. Megan spoke about stock files, etc. And so we do think that there will be a cost benefit um, to this. Economies of scale are very important in this model, but we didn't model it explicitly. So and I agree with the point. Another um, way in which this model can have unexpected benefits is in the form of financial education. Mm. Rolling out workshop after workshop to employees um, about retirement when they're 25 <coughs> is unlikely to have any positive impact. They're just not receptive to the message. It's not an issue that's really relevant in their lives. But if you attach benefits that are real and relevant to people, it gives you an opportunity to engage with them about financial concepts that aren't just relevant to, to housing which would be relevant to saving overall. So it does give us much greater opportunities in order to engage with members, to encourage financial education throughout people's lifetimes so they can instill that, on their, um, instill that education with their children because that's actually the, the best way of transferring financial skills. Improve their financial capability. And it's interesting that, that in, the, in the Singapore experience, for example, in the beginning, the vast majority of the money flowed into other uses, not retirement. Um, and today, same system, largely the same system, there have been some changes over the years, the majority of the money actually flows into long-term savings. As the whole society has actually, let's call it graduated or come of age in terms of their financial capability and financial wellness, we've seen the actual shift. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is what kind of society do we have here? Are we more to where Singapore is today or are we more to where they were in 1965 1970, and, and I guess that's the, the question that we're asking. There's another question. Me again. Um, I think this is really great, eh? Well done, guys. It's like, thanks for sharing. Um, I wondered if you have tested it with consumers, this kind of approach, if people would want to, like, you know, buy into a bundled, um, pre thought out approach to their holistic needs? So we, we haven't tested a, a full working concept of it. The research that Megan referred to was we actually conducted member-level research. So we, we, we sent questionnaires to members of our retirement funds. We did sort of semi-structured interviews with uh, random people. We had focus groups. Um, we, so we've engaged on a number of different fronts with sort of, let's call it um, the average working South African out there, as to what it is that they would be looking for and who they would want to help them with that. The good news for all of you in the room is the interesting thing is what they, what they, who they really want to help them with this problem are financial services companies, strangely. Um, 
and I sit here saying that as a financial services company, um, and, and, and their employers also featured very highly, uh, much lower down the list, and they obviously will do this themselves, much lower down the list was family, um, unions, or other association groups. And so really they are looking to the financial services industry as a whole and their employer um, to actually help them structure something along these lines. And it's interesting you ask that. We've actually had uh, a couple of employers who are already doing these kinds of things, but perhaps not in the sort of scale that we're talking about here today. But there are employers who are working on, and I'm not just talking about mines and, and that sort of accommodation. There are employers with housing schemes, education schemes, um, even, even short-term saving schemes uh, made, made available to their employees. And so we're seeing it in bits and pieces already. It's just not necessarily pulled together. So, I, I mean, I think there's some appetite. We haven't specifically tested you know, this model uh, with, with individuals. Okay. One more question uh, in the middle there. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, the question of your, your model, the way you, I heard you, uh, either is a contribution model or distribution model. But I just want you to clarify on how you would classify your model, whether as a loss, loss model or a profit model, because I looked at the way how you worked it out. Is it feasible that it could be implemented and be classified under one of those categories, loss or profit model, that would, that would work better for funding retirements? I'm not sure I necessarily fully understand the question, but um, what we looked at was whether each of these goals could be funded by an individual in that system. There's no redistributive nature in terms of the, the numbers that we were looking at. So this isn't about uh, redistribution, if that was the question. Um, we also, this is all this, the returns and all that are after costs, and we've used typical costs that exist in the industry today. We haven't done anything special to the point of the, the earlier question. So. Um, we haven't made any assumptions around the cost specifically that they would be reduced in order to make this feasible. We think that it's feasible as it stands at the moment. Um, but I don't know, maybe I didn't fully understand the profit versus loss in terms of the model. I don't know if you've... Michael, you're just not a very good actuary. No, that's true. In fact, I'm not an actuary at all. In fact, you aren't even an actuary. I'm actually shocked that I got you to present it today. No, um... I think that concludes the, this, this, this session. Um, I'd like to, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee, thank, uh, like to thank both Megan as well as Michael for the effort that they put in presenting today. Um, year after year, they seem to come to, uh, to us with a whole lot of innovative um, and forward thinking and thought leadership um, in approach. And, and we really, I think, as, a, as an industry and as a profession, welcome um, the, the, the efforts you put in to conferences such as these um, and, and your personal efforts in terms of presenting. So thanks on behalf of us all today for your time and effort uh, in presenting to us. Thank you. Thank you.